All right, welcome back to episode eight of the White Up Collective podcast. It's Bo Burns, as always, with Austin Dudley. Austin, what's going on? Oh, just getting through another day. I hear you. So, on this episode today, we're going to have kind of the, um, what would you say, the know every single thing there ever was about turkeys? or Yeah, he's getting there. I feel like he's probably going to be blushing hearing us talk about it like that. Uh, I also kind of look at him as being like, uh, the grand custodian that I know at this point, I don't know he'll tell you there's some other ones out there, but, uh, that's kind of how I got to know him, uh, is just through some turkey collecting, uh, both really literature and then just some, um, records and stuff. I think it's kind of how, how we originally kind of got started, uh, talking to one another, but I figured this is probably going to be our last turkey podcast for about nine months. Well, as sad we'll as that, that is, long, as but, sad as that is um, to say, so, yeah, for a little while at least. So um, we'll get. Um, so I figure we could wrap this up with uh, with a good turkey guest and kind of get into some of the uh, some of the background of who he is, what he does, how he's got going. So Brent Rogers is joining us today. Brent is uh, you may have seen his name. He's been on numerous podcasts before. I've seen him. You know, he he write. I've seen him with. Mossy Oak on a handful of things. He just recently came out with a um, book with Turkey Call. It's Turkey Call and Literature Collectors Guides. Him and George Dinka Jr. had put that out uh, just kind of as like a, uh, and he can go into this a little bit more here in just a second. But um, anyway, that that is how I got to know Brent. Brent, you can you hear us? You with us? I am. That's, that's, and that's, not that's, only that's my- a weak bio for you. Uh, but I figured you might could tell a little bit more about yourself than I could. Well, you got me blushing, plus you've set the expectations high enough that I'm going to have to stretch a little. Well, do what you, okay. do what you need to. <laughs> so, Brent, Thanks won't for you – uh, Yeah, absolutely. Won't you just kind of – I guess everybody that's listening, I'm sure they've probably heard you on another podcast because I feel like our listeners listen to um, – all the type podcasts like the Mossy Oaks and the Gamekeepers and all that. But want, for anybody that hasn't heard you before, why don't you kind of go into who you are, what you do, um, I guess your involvement in the turkey world, just whatever you think. Well, I'm a lifetime Southern Iowan, and uh, my heritage was farming and hunting and all things outdoors. So I've been fortunate. Turkey's were more of a midlife thing because we didn't really have a huntable population where I grew up. Um, there was a season in Iowa that started in 1973. Uh, I was born in 72, but didn't really have them to hunt in my local area until mid nineties. So, so that piece has been something that I have got very passionate about. Uh, as I talked about farming, we had bronze turkeys on the farm and we can talk about that more, but I was, just really intrigued with turkeys um, just in terms of language and, and actually had a couple we kept as pets for, for many years and and uh, was a biology major in, in college and uh, make my wages as a food scientist, um, lead a R&D team of food technologists, but my passion that I spend a lot of time with in terms of hobbies and uh, volunteer has, has been really conservation and wild turkey. 
So been through all the different, uh, you know, offices and local Wild Turkey Federation and NWTF State Board and, and uh, even TFT, you know, definitely uh, interested in what Ron Jolly's doing there. So uh, more recently, I've, I've been scratching my itch as I have a passion for the people in history of turkey hunting uh, to, to pass that along and been doing that through, you know, seminars or through uh, writing and, and just uh, social media. So, and, and Austin, as you mentioned, we got connected because of my interest in your grandfather. And, and uh, that's, that's, that's what I love is turkey hunting is, is such a community and the, the people you come in contact with just verify it's the, it's the greatest thing going in this outdoor world. Yeah, it's kind of crazy how you once you start really getting into it, you figure out how connected everybody in that world is. It seems like everybody knows everybody, or at least everybody knows of everybody, and uh, it's a it's a pretty interconnected deal. Well, and that's what I was kind of wanting to do today was, like I said, I gave a very weak intro for as, as he was talking. I was just kind of thinking through all the things I've, I've seen him do and been on, and he's uh, as much as a historian of it as he as he is uh kind of runs his own little I, i'm gonna call it a museum at his house just his personal collection but uh i just went completely blank and just completely lost that thought um no what i was gonna say was uh i like the story behind the people of it and so like and that's why i told brent whenever we first started this was hey you've got on you you've you've been on several shows you've talked about turkey history you've talked about restoration where we've gone with turkeys across the country you talk about books you write about uh value you you know we do all this stuff but like who are you like that's what's cool to me about the turkey hunt story like you know growing up in southern iowa like what's that like how you know what he just said you know at what point did you get into turkey hunting like i like that personal feel of who are you what got you into it what makes you tick so that's what I was really hoping we we're going to be able to accomplish today was was run through some of that. Well, let's uh before we jump into all that, let's cover off on and Brent, you jump in if if you've got any thoughts on this little thing we're going to cover here. But last episode we talked about the uh, MDWFP's spring meeting where they were going to potentially make some changes for next year's turkey season here in Mississippi. Uh, we were just looking at it. The mandatory tagging of the turkey has passed. Um, I was kind of surprised i was you know you've been supposed to e-tag now for what like four years i think it started in 2019 yeah four or five um and they were estimating that only 30 to 40 percent of hunters actually e-tag their turkeys i was kind of i mean i I'm knew that it wasn't 100 percent, but i didn't think it would be that low um so i am kind of happy that the mandatory tagging has passed and is that brent is that something up in iowa that's y'all have to actually tag the turkeys correct Yes, we do. Um, we, we have to actually physically put a tag on the turkey. We call it in. There's no check stations, but yeah, I, I don't know how we expect people to do their jobs without data. We can, we can, you know, criticize or comment all, all we want as hunters on policies and whatever, but unless there's actual data decisions can be made on. I'd say we're we're disadvantaging the very people that we're expecting to fix problems. So without a doubt, and how can you say you know you throw around these questions about bag limits and should they go up? Should they go? Uh, no, they never have the conversation. Should they go up? It's always should they go down? And I mean, we 
don't even right now know how many turkeys we kill in the state. Well, and I think a perfect, perfect, um, just explanation of that is I think they, in the article, they said they estimate like 60 to 66,000 turkey hunters in the state. And I think when they opened this up for public comment, it was, it got 130 something comments. So that just shows you how many people actually, and that, that falls in line with ETAG. I mean, how many people are actually going to take the time to do something like that? Yeah. But so Brent, but expect changes. you may be familiar with ours. Um, we've been on just like that. Uh, originally it started out as like a, um, I guess the first year or two, it wasn't mandatory. You just, it was like a self-reporting type deal. And then after year one or year two, it switched to mandatory e-tagging, but there wasn't any physical tag. So this one is going to go to a physical tag and a, yeah, the e-tagging will keep going. It's, instead of a, instead of a game check station, like you're talking about, it'll be just like you guys. Yeah. Just instead of calling, it's an app Great. on your phone. So, um, and yep. another, another thing that I know this is, I've, heard you say on other podcasts that you're into fall turkey hunting or which it wasn't i think it's uh not under 10 counties that actually allowed fall turkey on here but they have suspended that indefinitely there's no more fall turkey hunting at all in the state of mississippi i kind of hate to see that yeah they i didn't read any of that they didn't have the actual data to back it up but they said that they were seeing because it allowed for hunting hens, um, and they were seeing that just a very, very minute lowering of the hen population had a very big effect on the overall turkey population. So, um, well, and I, I can understand that aspect of it as a fall hunter. You know, I I actually didn't. Uh, this is the first fall season this past year. I haven't got a tag in a long time. I just, even though our our turkey numbers are decent, I thought, you know, I'm just going to take a year off and kind of observe and and watch and. And I much prefer to get a gobbler in the fall when I can, but I have taken, you know, hens or young of the year in the fall before, especially when I first started doing it. And and if it's sustainable, I think that's great. Um, nowadays, I think we got to look and, and determine, you know, if that's really, if, if we need to, to be doing that. You know, I, I've got too, too many uh, suspicions that if you're shooting that one hen that has a successful nest every year that may not have you know you're, you're kind of getting diminishing returns so I, I do think it's something that we, we just have to know that regulations are made with the data we have and they're subject to change yeah, yeah i feel like you could there's a step between doing away with it and not shooting hens yeah i don't I, yep. I guess i don't know enough about it because it's never been i mean there's here where we this, hunt yeah the there's state, nowhere in this it's side never been a fall turkey season well as long as we've been alive but um right. it does kind of seem like one of those things where you could you know if you went gobblers only and maybe it counted towards your overall year right uh, deal but but that's that's what they decided to do was was suspend that that season across the state indefinitely but the only other thing that we talked about was the opening day, trying to push it back a little bit. They voted that down. That's staying on the field. So yeah, I know you were you were a <laughs> proponent of that. I was a proponent of backing it up a little bit, but uh, they're not going to change that. For I'm now. glad for the update. I hadn't had a chance to look at any of this. So I, I'm, I'm hearing this all real time. Yeah, well, it's kind of crazy, too. And there's, you know, they have these meetings and they ask for this public, um, you know, let them know your opinions, and 130-something out of 66,000 is pretty poor, but maybe people bring attention to some of it and, and that it actually they take 
hunter um, input into account. Maybe um, you know another another consideration in some states is the fact that sometimes the game managers aren't the decision makers on some of those regulations. As you see, there's natural resource commissions and, and others where there's appointed positions. That's that's who I really feel sorry for because sometimes those folks are are not close enough to it. To, to make the decision that's right. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. They might not be hunters at all. Just, exactly. But, but that's all that, that's all that, um, really Quick matters coming out of that. Yeah. yeah. Coming out of that meeting. Um, so just Austin, if you want to kind of take it from here and, and let's get into, um, everything about Brent Rogers. Yeah. No, that sounds good to me. Um, you know, Brent, like I said, I just kind of wanted to get started from the very beginning on what, what made you tick? What got you into it? I know you said you didn't start off really as a kid uh, hunting, but what uh, what got you going with with that? You mentioned the uh, the raised turkey story. I know somebody that had a similar start to that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, so didn't didn't uh, Jack Dudley, your grandfather, if I recall, he had a quote or something that was like, "If you want to understand turkey, get a." gobbler and a couple hens or, right. and, yeah. and lift them and watch them that's yeah right. that's, that's how he learned to call i mean that, that's what because yep. you know i mean at that point in time there wasn't a bunch of turkey hunters around here and so that's kind of what got him got him started they had some pen turkeys and actually he kept pen turkeys pretty much his whole life um and i remember being a kid he always had some at the camp house and i always tell people i don't know if anybody else has ever had this experience or not maybe it was just like either my kid brain or or just thinking back on it it seems this way but he always kept turkeys there at the camp house yard and it seemed like you could go out there at any time of the day and there'd be turkeys gobbling like morning mid-morning afternoon late afternoon whatever and it was like those i don't I, he swore by it I don't, and that's what i'm saying like i don't know if, i don't know if anybody else can back this up or not but i know he always swore by it but it was like you could go out there and hunt literally any time of the day and you could strike a turkey and get a goblin. Now, it's not like that now. We're definitely not like that now. But it was like as long as he had those, and like I said, it may just be like uh, causation without accusation, but it I mean, definitely we seemed were like in that Indiana was Indiana this year there, where we heard all the turkeys and killed both turkeys that we killed up there. There was right at the bottom of that hill was a little piece of private where they had farm-raised turkeys right there. So maybe there is something to it. Who knows? I don't know. It's like he kept them fired up all day. Well, you know, I think it helps to qualify. What are we talking about? It's like a, a farm turkey. Because I think in some people's mind, they hear farm turkeys and they think of giant buildings with fans in them that have 2,000 white turkeys in them. And that's not what we're talking about, right? This is, <laughs> this is like well, a dog my, pen with turkeys in it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, we're talking small farm. And turkeys are more likely to be turkeys when they're in a setting like we're talking about versus you know, in a, in a giant industrial building and, and, and that serves its purpose. I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying growing up, my experience with, with turkeys was the 4-H kid. And that was one of my projects is I would, I would raise poultry, you know, turkeys, chickens, rabbits, and sell them for meat and eggs and, and and everything. And the, the bronze turkeys we had is what really intrigued me because they looked like wild turkeys. And, and being a kid that, you know, lived on sporting magazines and just ate up 
every one of those species I saw in there, including turkeys, even though I didn't hunt them, I had a great fascination with them. The, the farm turkeys we had, you know, we, we had, uh, they ran free range in the yard half the time and, and until, until my, uh, my siblings became the part of the pecking order <laughs> of the dominant Tom. And, and then we had to have the, the turkeys in, in more of a pen, but, yeah, the, just the interactions you have with them and the vocalizations. I mean, I, I can, I, I can still hear hear that. You know, that to me, the, the foundational turkey language that I have is that vocalizations as a kid that I heard turkeys making, and uh, just observing that. We kept one tom and one hen that were bronze turkeys. I think we ended up having the the uh, the male we called Tom, of course, and the hen Henrietta. How's that for original? <laughs> but Tom lived to be 12 years old and he weighed 57 pounds at one time. Oh, he was enormous. And uh, he, would, uh, he would establish dominance over anything smaller than him in the yard. And when my brother, brothers and sister were out there, he would knock them down and tread on them. And, you know, they'd be screaming a fit. I got to tell you the one story. You, have you ever heard of the the book The Flaming Turkey by Robert Hitt Neal? Uh, I haven't. So there's a book, and uh, he tells a story. And, and when I read the book, I thought this was going to be a similar story to one I'll tell you. But the, the story I've got, I had a younger brother. I think I was I was 12, so I had another brother that was eight and one that was four, and my eight year old brother was assigned to burn trash. And so he was taking a bag of trash out to the trash barrel and the turkey saw him and come after him. And, and my brother standing there lighting matches, trying to get the trash to take so he can run back to the house where the turkey knocks him down and treads on him. Well, he, he, he throws a match at the turkey out of, you know, last resort because yeah. he knows he's going to get, and that match landed on the turkey's back and started to burn <laughs> and my four-year-old brother who was out in the yard i thought was trying to get the garden hose and put out the turkey who was running in a circle with smoke coming off his back there was more of a smolder than flame <laughs> and i ran over and, and patted out the fire but uh that the flaming turkey i've got my own story on that one I, I have a great visual image of that whole scene of chaos Hey, you mentioned, yeah. you, maybe you can, I think I said this. On a, on a, oh, go ahead. I didn't know if that was us or, or on your side. Uh, no, I think I've said this on a, on a podcast before to Bo, we were talking about decoys before. You said the, the hen's name was Henrietta. Do you know, I'm hoping that you can answer, you may be the person that can answer this. There used to be like an old full body hen decoy that was like, I'm going to say made 80s. 70s, 80s, maybe 90s, somewhere around that three-generational period. Like, full stand-up, had attachable legs to it, uh, just like in an upright position. It was like before they came out with foam decoys. Mm -hmm. And I've seen two of them. Both my grandfathers had one. And both of them called them Henriettas. Is that the name? Like, do you know, Do you know? Does that, ring, does that decoy ring a bell at all? I know exactly what you're talking about. 
and now you've got my curiosity peak where I'm not going to be able to be satisfied till I, I track down more information. Yeah, on that, I don't, I can't I don't know who, ma- I'll say, I don't know yeah. who made those, what the names of them were. I mean, like we got one still, um, she's missing kind of, she got too close to the heater one day and part of her face kind of <laughs> sagged off a little bit, but, um, <laughs> I just know they always call they always called her Henrietta. So I didn't know if that was I was like, maybe Brent's the guy, maybe he can answer this question. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean and, and speaking of even of farm turkeys, I think it's in the old pro turkey hunter, you know. I mean there's mention of of how some people would you know, would stake out a, a farm gobbler in, in order to you know, to kinda right. pull in a, a regular gobbler and or a wild gobbler and you know, in Indians, there's there's some evidence there of methods that they use. So we, we yeah, we didn't necessarily invent using using visual aids, but uh, yeah, that's interesting with that that original kind of what I would call the, an early decoy that was out there. Uh, yeah, it's the first one I remember seeing. But anyway, mm-hmm. that that's kind of sidetrack. When you said Henrietta, it made me think about he and me and Bo were talking about that. In a, in a previous episode and uh, I was hoping you might have a little more information on those because I've never I, until now I've never taken the, the time I guess to think about looking it up myself never really crossed my mind until we started talking about it the other day so um, well yeah well if you want me to you know so so raising the turkeys was step one in terms of I think keeping me really interested in turkeys without wild turkeys to, to chase but as as I began my career, I, I was working, uh, the company I worked for is called Cargill, big food and agricultural company. And two of my colleagues uh, had started turkey hunting. Um, they lived uh, in an area that, there in southern Iowa. They had some turkeys and, you know, they, they got me inspired in, in terms of knowing that there was huntable turkeys out there. I had seen our first turkey on the family farm in 1988. It was a hen. And uh, just, you know, again, just kind of made me realize times are changing. I was absolutely captivated. I'd grown up small game hunting, deer hunting, and, uh, you know, very passionate about that. I I can think of as a kid begging my dad to, to take me along. I was probably, you know, whatever, four or five years old and just, had to go and I I started out carrying a stick my job was to make sure the stick was not pointed at him didn't get in the mud <laughs> and uh, once I mastered the stick then then I was able to, to move on to a you know small gun and and uh, but yeah so hunting was in the blood turkeys were in the blood and I think it was just hearing a couple of people I, I knew and respected talking about it and thinking okay this this can happen I, I immediately went out. I bought some videos, uh, bought some audio tapes, and uh, just started to watch and listen and, and picked up a few calls and then got a few books. And I, I'm kind of just a, you know, a teach-yourself guy when I've got to be, and that's essentially what I did. I, I, I got all the information I could from them. And uh, the very first season I went out in the – in the early nineties, I got, um, got out there and made my first call after I heard my first gobble, which absolutely made my, you know, just sent electricity through me. And my first call, I realized didn't sound anything like it did when I was in front of the T 
TV or recorder. A little more pressure out there. I still feel yeah. that way. Yeah. Oh man. I, I and I just remember thinking I sound like a dying goose, and I could get a shot gobble, but I thought I, I'm not calling a turkey in today. But uh, when when they flew down, I realized they weren't going to come my way. I went right back home. I I got the videotape out, watched again. The, that particular one was one with Tom Stuckey and Matt Moret, and it might have been uh, might have been Walter Parent. Anyway, watching those three guys practice some more, went back out. And I killed a Jake that afternoon. I called in three Jakes, and that was my first turkey. And the hook was sunk in so deep, there was no hope for me. That's for sure. But it was cool. Years later, when I started volunteering for the NWTF and started going to conventions, that was probably late '90s. I remember seeing Tom Stuckey and Matt Moret visiting together at convention, and I just walked up and said, "Hey guys, I wanted to just say thanks for helping teach me how to turkey hunt." You know, through through the kind of the multimedia and, and uh, I remember doing just both saying, that's what we love about this show is, is, you know, kind of the, the way you get to know other hunters and get appreciation and realize folks like that are just common, common guys like us who are doing what they love. Right. That's pretty crazy thinking about going back and getting a little midday practice in. Was that on your, okay. I, I know turkeys at that time were real kind of, in pockets, I guess, through there. Was that first one, did it end up being on y'all's place or were you having to travel somewhere around to neighbor's yeah. place or something? Or that was on your it place? It was. Okay. It was. It was. It was. So, of course, I went to the very fence row where I, I kicked that hen out of years ago and uh-huh. I've seen turkeys there since. It was basically a little oak grove. I was sitting on the, the neighbor's side of the fence because they had they had more of the trees on their side right there than we did right and it's just just i say like a little oak grove and and then uh, kind of interspersed with with uh fields the the part of iowa i i grew up in is what would have been oak savanna at one time and uh you know just what i consider to be beautiful country and uh, a lot of where i live now uh i live about an hour from where I grew up, it's, it's still kind of like that because this, this part of Iowa, the Southern part doesn't have, you know, people think they drive, they drive across I 80 or I 35 and it's flat, black dirt growing corn and beans down here in the Southeast corner. We're a bit more hilly, got a bit more clay. So the soil doesn't produce the same as some of that does in, you know, middle or Northern parts of the state. Um, and, and there tends to be a bit more grazing land. So you, you keep a few more trees in the ravines right. and, and uh, it ends up being world-class whitetail and turkey habitat. So, yeah, the, the, I had a friend of mine come up there and hunt Iowa this year and I don't know what, what part he was in, but he fell in love with it. He said that was one of the coolest places he's hunted in a while was Iowa. Yeah. They, they tend to, you know, they tend to be good sized turkeys. I think just, you know, with, with, adequate nutrition and and uh they gobble gobble heartily i mean I, i've loved hunting everywhere else but the the uh the gobbles the local turkeys belt out <laughs> they they definitely uh they they definitely are fun to hunt 
Yeah, as far as size, you compare them to ours down here in Mississippi, then, yeah, they're very big. I told you about that when Brent and I were texting earlier in the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, right after their season opened, my brother killed one. We were, like, they were the same size, and Brent was like, oh, yeah, it's a good two-year-old up here. And we were like, the first thing we did when we killed ours was we had to run back and weigh it because it was the biggest turkey we'd ever it's seen like here. County <laughs> record, and it's just <laughs> average up there. But <laughs> Yeah, I keep I keep extensive records. I, I always have. I, I have multiple hunting journals full, and and I keep Excel spreadsheets with you know I keep track of everything, not just time of day and and uh, weather and calls and and all that, but I also keep track of like uh, crop contents and weight and stuff like that. And I think my the average turkey I've killed just over twenty two pounds. I've never killed a thirty pounder, but I've killed a few twenty eight, twenty nine. Uh, so yeah, there's some, there's some good size. Yeah. I don't even, gobblers I can't imagine foot. what that would even look like. They got big old, tell you, they got, they got big old heads. That's uh, <laughs> you walk up and you think, boy, that's that the jowl. They actually have jowls. Think, think like hog jowls. Yeah. Yeah, that's, we, I describe them as being very meaty headed when you start getting out in the Midwest. Yeah. That's what we noticed yep. in Indiana and the, the beards seem to be, a lot thicker, or at least the two we killed up there were a lot thicker than just your average beard down here. I guess yeah, again, I don't know if that's, bigger. you know, the, if that's nutrition driven or whatever, but yeah, it's, I, I've got, I've got a wall full of, of nice thick beards. That's for sure. So, um, in fact, I, I saw a hen, I, I, the, the gobbler I shot this year during the fourth season in Iowa, which was the second opportunity for me to, to kill a, we can get two as residents here one as non-residents second bird i killed this year i i shot the gobbler he was roosted 30 yards behind me it was so tight it was unreal and i thought there's no way i'm gonna end. there was a hen in the tree above me when she pooped before she flew down it i could smell it it was so <laughs> strong and uh fortunately she pitched the other way, but the gobbler still pitched out in front of me. I, I, I had only one chance to, to make a call, just open and praying that it wasn't going to be the end of it because I was afraid he was going to follow her. He flew down 10 yards from me, and I, I had to make a shot at 10 yards. And Immediately after he went down, another gobbler came down, and I got video of, of him as well as uh, another what I thought was a gobbler and Jake that came in. I went back and reviewed the footage, and that was a bearded hen. It's the biggest beard on a hen I've ever seen. It's a, a fairly thick beard. I, I just couldn't believe it at the time because I was kind of fixated just on getting it all on camera. But Yeah, Austin, um, you had that video of that yeah. hen strutting this year. Brent, I'll send you uh, – I got a video I got to send you from our trip to Nebraska the other day. But um, I've – we have a lot of bearded hens at where we hunt, like around here in Kemper. Like, it just seems like every time you see a, a flock, there's going to be one or two bearded hens in it. But and I've seen one time out there. It's probably been ten years ago. Uh, Ross and I were hunting together, and we saw a, a hen that was trying to strut. She'd go into about a half strut, um, and she would try to gobble. We've ran into a lady in Nebraska that could just flat out do it. She was full strutting. <laughs> full like yeah obviously it had a little bit of a different sound to it but she was full goblin full strut and she's walking she came running up there blew up in strut and like you know how when you're sitting like apart with people you kind of like whisper yelling at one another we knew that there was one long beard we had a full fan 
and there was two Jakes in this field with this group of hens. So I had the best view. So I watched her come running up, yelping at us the whole time. She'd getting mad. She's yelping, running up there. And they couldn't see her as she was running up. And then when she blows up in the strut, they're all hollering at me. Hey, that's, that's the Longbeard. You got a full fan. That's Longbeard. You got a full. And I'm going, it's a hen. It's a, and they're like, that's him. That's him. I'm like, it's a hen. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to, I don't, that baffles me. I'd like to know the biology behind that. But she, what, she did. I mean, like she would, she would blow every feather up, pull her head down. I mean, the, the, she was full blown strutting. That one I saw here, she couldn't, she didn't get all of her feathers up, but this one, this one, she was in a full strut. Yeah, I mean, it looked like. Well, you know, I, video. I can, again, this, this is kind of, kind of funny, but even makes me think back to having turkeys on the farm as a kid. I, I remember how young those poults were. They barely just were getting primary wing feathers when they were starting to strut. And I can remember there were even some, you know, very few, but there once in a while there'd be a hen that would even be trying to strut, even even at that age. It was just kind of interesting to see that. Yeah, it's crazy. See, it, I've seen the little poults. You know, it seems like a couple of days old out there strutting with what little mm-hmm. feathers they have, and that's it's pretty <laughs> awesome seeing how that's just. I mean, that is just in their brain. It's we know we're supposed to strut. That's what I told one of the guys. He was like, "It's got a." How's it a hen? It's got a full fan. I was like, because it's an adult hen. Like it's a this is a full grown hen. Yeah. That's neat to see something yeah, like I'll, that. Uh, it it's on a cell phone video, so it's not just super great. But you'll you'll get the I'll, when I, I'd send it to you now. But I, I know you're on your phone, so I'll I'll send it to you later so you can check it out. Yeah. So how much in the springtime? I know you you um, work in the food industry. Do you get a bunch of time to hunt in the spring, or do you? Save all your vacation time to hunt, or, or how much do you get to get out there? Well, it, not as much as I'd like, but who who can say who can't say that, right? But I I do try to hunt. You know, I would love to hunt at least five states every year. This year, I only made it to three. Um, but yeah, normally I try to make it to like five states. And uh, you know, I've hunted I've hunted coast to coast, California, New York, and went down to florida last year that was the first time i'd been down there that was really neat <clears throat> but uh a lot of what i hunt is is midwest states because it's drivable so i've you know this year was iowa wisconsin and minnesota so yeah those are that i hadn't gotten into the midwest much just a little bit but that's a cool place for that's where most of the, mine has been has I mean, been in the midwest just those big which mm-hmm. i hadn't gotten over to iowa and seen you know the kind of more open fields but just some- yeah, and it's, I mean, it's as neat to you as it would be for me to, you know, when I when I go and hunt, you know, what I would call swamp or when, when hunting kind of, you know, mountains. And yeah, I love going, where I go in, in Wisconsin and Minnesota is what they call the driftless area, mm-hmm. where it's, uh, it's the part of those states. And even in very northwest Iowa, it's like that, where the glaciers never kind of raised the land. So there's there's uh, lots of hills, you know, it's, it's rocky ground and part of Iowa live in that I live in has still good enough soil even here where pretty much every farmer is farming right up to the ditch. So your trees here are t- typically in the ditches versus that part of the country. Uh, those slopes are steep and rocky enough that all the hills and ridges are wooded. And then you've got kind of more lush farmed valleys and I find that to be exceptionally beautiful. And I love being a flatlander here, even though we've got hills, 
my favorite is to hunt hills and ridges. I just just relish every moment on those ridges. Yeah, and that's probably the best thing about traveling to a couple other states every year is just the different landscape. Just, I mean, like you say, it's it. You don't think anything of what you see every day, but somebody if somebody came down to Mississippi, they'd be um, probably just as infatuated as I am going to another state. It's just getting to see new stuff. Exactly. And it's like, I, I, this happens to me every time I get up and go on a trip somewhere. Yeah, you get in the habit of doing your everyday deal and like seeing your everyday stuff. And then you go on a trip like that and you drive six, seven, eight hours. And just how drastically different you can change your scenery in that short of a drive. Mm-hmm. Yep. Pretty crazy. Truly. Doing that. But, so let's, uh, let's kind of go ahead and move into to your collecting side of things. I guess uh, when you were – when you were first learning, you mentioned buying those couple of um, videos and whatnot. Is that kind of was that the unofficial start of your collection, or how did how did all that start? Yeah, it it was. Although I had no idea at the time because I was you know I was doing it out of just utility, whatever it took to to get me a turkey. That's that's what I was buying. You know, books and audio, video, all that, and. And some of those calls, like uh, I can remember the very, one of the very first calls I bought was the Nightingale Old Yeller in, in a Primo's Power Crystal. And I can still remember, must have been, I don't know, one of my early seasons, I knelt on somehow and broke my Old Yeller call. And I got panicky thinking, oh my gosh, I can't believe I just broke the call that I depend on. And, and I immediately went out and tried to, but they weren't in the stores any longer. And, uh, and I think eBay was going by them because I ended up getting on eBay and I bought four or five more just to have as backups. Off. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I, I got to make sure I've got plan B and even plan C. And, uh, then it was, it was kind of at that point. I think I, the eBay, I think was, was an eye opener in terms of saying, huh, that's interesting. There is actually quite a bit of stuff there. And, and then I started looking around. I, I always had a love of history. I've been an avid reader. Uh, I, I try to read a book a week. I think last year I finished the year at 47. I didn't quite get 52 in, but but I, I'm just a, a very avid reader, love history. And as I started to amass books around turkey hunting because I enjoyed them and, again, had stacked up a few calls and had all these audio video going back and just started to realize I've kind of got the basis of a collection and, and then traveling, you know, to, to different, uh, states and, and starting to go to convention, uh, NWTF convention and meeting people. That's what got me really kind of inspired to learn a lot more about that people in history. Cause it kind of got me out of just kind of the localized setting where the goal was to, to kill a Turkey. And, and I started to look much more behind the, the the picture at the lines right and just say wow there's there's some really interesting things to trace here and i i i now have about 7500 different items and that's everything from books and magazines to calls and records and you know any kind of audio video just all that a uh, little bit of art uh, especially what i love to do is i love to to put together what i would call um items that are uh, related so for instance for jack dudley i've got the book and and then i had to to get 
the record. I've seen three slightly different labels on those records. They're all the same, but I've got two of those three and one is signed. And then I've got, I had to go get the Sydney, Sydney Vaughn box, right? Who, right. So, so that's, that's one that, uh, that Jack Dudley endorsed. And, and I can't collect one of his calls because just like Earl Mickle said, uh, that's one you can't collect because he was a natural voice caller. Right. But, uh, but for the, a lot like of my collection, said, that, that's what I do. Yeah, I mean that that was if you wanted to call that he was tied with, that was it. And so it kind of completes the, <laughs> it kind of completes the collection. Yeah, and that's and that's what I've done is I've I, I've tried to to go past um just the surface level. Hey, I've got this, and I'm checking a box to what is it exactly I've got here, and and that's where I've talked to a lot of a lot of those people that wrote the books or make the calls or to their family that did. And, and, and again, I keep pretty extensive records. So I try to, to make sure I capture what I learn. And that's where I eventually at some point I, I was, uh, I think I was two classes away from an English minor in college as well. I was actually a, a teacher in our, or a tutor in our writing lab and always enjoyed writing. And uh, so that's been a fun outlet just to be able to share some of this information. I, I would be the first to say I'm not an expert. I'm learning. I know I know many people that have a lot of the knowledge and everybody's got different pieces of it. But I stand on the shoulders of a lot of people that's been willing to share information with me. And and uh, whether that's been, you know, biologists like Dr. Kinemar or collectors like Danny Ellis and and uh, D. Cruzan and just so so many people that have been generous. Rick Powell sharing information with me and and authors who who I admire who have been great to make friendships with me and you know Joe Joe Hutto who's somebody I admire so much and has become a friend. Just it's been neat to uh, to make that turkey hunting for me has become a lifestyle. I would say. Yeah, is it so? I don't have that much experience with the collecting side of things or the, the, I guess you could call it some of it memorabilia or whatever, but um, it seems to me that the last couple of years, it's kind of, I guess, I don't know if social media or what has made a lot of this stuff uh, either harder to find or more in demand. It Has it always kind of been like this or is it, is it getting harder to find this stuff um, in the last couple of years? So my, my sense is it, it is getting more competitive, which is somebody that loves the stuff. I'm glad to see it. As somebody who's still trying to buy the stuff, it makes it a challenge to right. get it, yeah, to find it or find it affordably. If you've got everything there is to have, then you love to see it become harder and harder to find. Yeah. And, and you know, I I still say I, I want somebody to value it as much as I as I do. So I'm thrilled to see the interest and. In, and I, I know when Earl Mickle and Howard Harlan wrote their books in 1994 that were really on turkey calls, that really kicked off the collecting, what I would call the collecting uh, world for turkey calls. And uh, prices got pretty hefty on a lot of those custom calls after those books came out. In fact, I, I think, you know, again, you could, you could argue that some of the folks that bought those calls then are reticent to sell now because some of those calls they paid pretty steep prices for in the late nineties, early two thousands. It is catching back up now because I think this, you know, this generation that grew up in what I'd call the production call area uh, yeah. era as well, 
like me, I talked about some of those calls I had and, and little heartbreaker box call that Primo's made. My gosh, I, that, you know, that still finds its way in my, I, I've got numerous production calls. I still take along as well as a number of custom calls because I, those, those guys are my friends and I, they make good callers. So I take a mix, but the nostalgia has now set in for kind of that second generation of turkey hunting, uh, who, who bought a lot of production calls and, and I've got friends who said, why, why do those production calls sell for so much? And I say, because those are the calls we grew up with and, yeah. and now they mean something. And I've got, you know, many, many new in package production calls that, that I just treasure because to me, they, they bring back those memories of when I was in my youth, uh, in terms of being a, a turkey hunter those are the calls that I sought out or were used. And so they have special meaning to me. Yeah, I guess with, with that kind of stuff, I guess a little bit of it is, um, I guess let's talk about the custom calls. I mean, if you're, you know, so many people are making custom calls these days and, um, some of them I'm sure down the road will be very collectible and some of them will probably be worth nothing than what you paid for them. Is that kind of, luck of the draw when you're buying custom stuff that's that's being made now or how do you kind of select what what you think might be worth something down the road or, or are you just getting lucky yeah <clears throat> yeah you know i mean that that's where i say in, anything of value is is it, it's worth as much as somebody will pay for it right or it's worth as much to you as you'll pay for it i I've been cautious about trying to predict like, you know, what, what's going to become collectible in the future. Because the the thing I would say is I would always start with the sound. If a Turkey call sounds great to me and, and others agree, then, then I say, huh, well, that's, that's interesting. And, and there, I think people respect it based on it you know, it's true potential in terms of what it's created for. I also love a call that's beautiful. I mean, I, I have a lot of respect for, for those, those craftsmen or craftspeople. Mm-hmm. I think of, you know, like uh, Ralph Permar and, and Marlon Watkins and, and, and there's so many good call makers that make calls that are, they, they look good as well as they sound good on the custom call world. And and then there's the artist, you know, the the Tim Odoms and Sherry Brown and Kelly Puckett and others that that they they make a few of their own calls and they they uh, embellish a lot of others that that they can actually make the call worth more to me or to someone just by the uh, emotion that is evoked by what they put on a call to decorate it with. And then there's those production calls again that we grew up with that we have memories attached to that that not everybody may have them, but enough may do it makes it worth it. So for, to, to me, I think the, the value of a call will, will certainly be driven by how good it is or you know, what embellishment there is on it. And outside of that, it's, it's a very individual thing. You've also got an element. Uh, I was talking to, uh, to Mike Batty, who, who was a major call designer um, for a lot of these production, especially pots, um, that I used back in, back in the day and still do. But he, he was making the point that you think about the Lynch Turkey and the pines, that's a very collectible box called, you know what I'm talking about? And you know, that, that sells 
you know, easily for $600, you might get a really, really nice one, good shape that sells for $850. And, and, uh, what's funny is I've learned from Mike, didn't know this, that that call was really not sold all that long because the, the calls that, that Mr. Lynch had been selling the, the world champions that had those groove sides and the grooves were all part of the, the sound and, and, and what made that call really great to turkey hunters he had to take off when he when he put art on the side and then that call and, and i've got a couple of them you play it and it's definitely more flat right doesn't have the same reverberation or whatever that that the other ones do well you can you can go buy a lot of those great sounded world champions for a couple hundred dollars but who knew that 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 the one that was you know, only sold for a couple of years because it didn't sound good was going to end up being more collectible. Right. You know, the nostalgia part of it's the, what I like the most about that side of the world, like that side of the collection is just like finding the call side has never been big for me, but it, the books, the records, the audio visual, like that's when you sort of mentioned that about the nostalgia. I mean, I think that's something that this next generation is going to, miss or at least to me i feel like they're going to miss out on was the experience of like back when the vhs's would come out or the dvds would come out like that was an event yeah, for the us pre- like the new primos like, dvd every year oh gosh like that oh, was man. when the new primos dvd came out like that's what uh, we were doing we were getting together you get on there and find a new episode on youtube every single day you had to wait yeah you had to wait you got them all at one time we would have like a day where we all got together we'd cook out or eat we'd be at the camp house or when we got to college, we'd have like a pizza day. We'd buy, the, we'd go to Walmart, buy the new DVD, and go have pizza and watch it all day long. Like, oh yeah, yeah. You don't get that with streaming. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, and well, the, the other side of it is, I think when when it was uh, when it was DVDs and videos. I mean, I would go back and then yeah, I, it was the same. I mean, it was an event when it came out, but then I would go back and I still I still have a VCR hooked up and I. I I watch videos enough to make my wife roll her eyes, but I'm watching <laughs> was on the biggest screen TV, but we I, rewatched them constantly. Right. I mean, it wasn't yeah. like a, a snack thing where you go and you snack on it once and you're done. I, I, I've got very vivid memories of a lot of those hunts that I watched over and over again and, and they helped shape me. Oh yeah. That's, I mean, it's like a cult following for us on that. Like that's what we do every year. Like we get together at the camp house, there's a huge stack of them. We sit there and we watch the same ones over and over and over. Mm-hmm. I watched extreme spring on VHS a couple nights ago. <laughs> oh, that's, extreme that's, spring. That, that series, that series is great. Yeah. They had extreme spring and, and uh, Turkey school. I, I was going to say that, that was, that. A, I had Turkey school one and Turkey school three. I somehow didn't ever have two. Yeah. Uh, and I cannot find them. I don't know what happened to them. I was, that's what I was looking for when I found extreme spring the other night. And so, uh, I couldn't figure out what I did with Turkey school. Well, you know, some of those old videos are incredibly pricey anymore. I mean, I, the, the, the very early primos or some of those, uh, Turkey school early ones. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen them sell for 50 bucks. I've seen them sell for more like, uh, the very first primos, the truth. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've seen that go for nearly a hundred dollars. It's, uh, you know, there, there are people that that nostalgia factor is huge. And, 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 and even those who may, may not have grew up with it, just having an appreciation for that people, 
for the, for the people that were a part of it, right. Or, or just the fact that it is history. I mean, I think, I think there's hope that there'll be others that'll, I'm all, I'm all about passing the torch. I, I love my little, my little collection. And, and, uh, I realize I'm, I'm the custodian as you put it now, but it's more important for me to be thinking about who's going to appreciate this next. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this might be a good time to talk a little bit about your new book, but so if somebody was just getting started, just wanting to get into collecting stuff, whether it be books or calls or, or everything, uh, where would they even start or where would you say, or what would you say to do to kind of get going in the right direction with that stuff and not, I guess, not buy a bunch of stuff that's never going to be worth anything or, or for lack of a better term, just some junk. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think what, what, what is helpful is at some point to, to get in a circle of people that you can learn from. I mean, of course, there's the books like George and I wrote. Those are great reference guides, but it never replaces what you can learn from talking to an individual or seeing and touching, right, and learning that way. And and that's what I that's that was my approach is is to to basically be able to have somebody to ask questions to. And I, I get it's rare the day goes by I don't get two or three texts or phone calls from people asking questions and. And, and I've been happy to, to be able to help people that way. Um, this morning I got a, uh, I helped sell an original Tom Turpin 1924 book, uh, you know, for four figures, uh, and the seller and the buyer were both happy and, you know, small commission I get nothing, but, but a way to, to help two people get what they want out of a deal. And, and, and so I think it is about, who you can connect to that can give you guidance. And then to your point about how do you avoid getting junk and everything, the most important thing is to make sure that you're paying what you think it's worth. I have paid way more for some items in my collection than a a rational person would (laughs) because of what they meant to me. It may have been that call. Like I said, a new and packaged old yeller, I'm probably willing to pay more than most people or, or a call made in Iowa because I, I, I want, calls that were locally made and there's fewer of them and uh while i'll never you could say maybe get my money back out of it at least i've got the part of the story that it means something to me and you just need to know that going in right versus you're 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 paying it but i'll I'll be the first to say that i've had to also buy very responsibly i don't have unlimited resources in terms of time and cash and and so again the more i can learn from others that helped me to buy responsibly and when I sell to other people, my goal is not to, to fleece them. I know plenty of guys out there, they just can't wait to take advantage of somebody. And my character is more important to me than my wallet, so that's not my approach. Um, but at the same time, I want to make sure that that people do appreciate what the value of things are. Yeah, unfortunately, if you get on online these days and look at a bunch of the, um, not even the super rare stuff, but the uh, somewhat rare books, the you got a lot of people that are just hoping they can hit a lick, I guess, because they yep. got them priced up there. And yep. I guess some people, some people buy them just thinking, you know, they they've got to have them. But. Well, well if, if if it's if it's the last book you need in your collection, you may be willing to pay it, but otherwise, you're being taken advantage of in a situation like that. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and another thing to answer your question, but Brent, don't you, you run a, you have a pretty big community on, on Facebook, don't you, with the like vintage call makers or collectors? What, what's the name of that? Isn't yeah, that- it, we have, the, we have the vintage turkey calls and literature group, which I'm one of the admins of, uh, Josh Hanshoes, the guy that started the group and, and Dave Serencioni, he's a, he's quite a, a very knowledgeable collector of, of turkey calls is also an admin. I kind of started out as a literature guy. And of course I'm interested in all things Turkey, but yeah, we have about 3000 members and our group is a little different than some of the others because we do not allow buying and selling on the site. We only allow posts that are to, you know, to share what you have or to learn what others have and learn about the, the people behind it. And there's, there's, there's nothing wrong with buying and selling. Um, it's just we don't want our site to be that. There's yeah. plenty of others that already do that. Well, that's why um, I was saying. And then, that's why I was saying it as a resource. Kind of like if you're getting start, like if you're looking for something to kind of find out information about what's interesting, what's out there. Like that's a, I, I, I've liked that about y'all's community is just seeing that side of it. Yeah, yeah. There's, I mean. There's, uh, believe me, I spend plenty of time on the other sites too, because I, I, I am also buying and selling. So it's, uh, it's good that there's a variety of, of sites out there where you can, you know, like, like Kim Mummert's, uh, uh, Turkey Call Collector Trader. That's such a great site. I mean, it's the first place I go when I'm going to look for something or if I want to sell something, because that's, that's a lot of what his site is. There's a lot of great history there too. And so yeah, there's, there's plenty of good, good social media, uh, pieces, but, um, that definitely, I would say the, 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 uh, worker will, will distinguish themselves pretty quickly in terms of being a collector. Cause if the only place you're going to find calls is on eBay yeah. or, or a, a social media site, you're going to be pretty limited. Most of my really good finds that I have found have taken more elbow grease. It's been, you know, I, I hate to give away any secrets, but I will just say again, it's the people you connect with. As you, you start to get your name out there, people will call you. Or if, if you, uh, you know, if you start to, uh, to make connections, you, you will, you will, uh, get some leads in terms of when collections are coming up for sale. And, and, uh, again, it's just, um, even, even calling, I would say, uh, you know, local gun supply shops and, and, uh, book resellers. And gosh, I, I've had better finds doing stuff like that than anything. Just, just with a little bit of elbow grease. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I want to steer it back toward, I told you in the beginning, I, I didn't want to go real far down the collecting road. Cause I'd like, like to know kind of more about you and what made you tick on this. Um, like with your hunting and traveling now, like what's your, uh, what gets you into what we're like, what makes you get up and go in the morning? What is it that you like to do? How's, how's your style? How do you, you know, what, what do you like about that side of it? I hate to cut the collecting side short, but like I told you, a a lot of that information has kind of been out there and I wanted to kind of get more on the backside of of what you've been doing. Well, you're talking in relation to turkey hunting, right? Yeah. To turkey hunting. That's right. Like what, uh, what yeah you know what, like what's that as you've pieced together all this information from your mentors and and past and collecting and and reading literature like how have you pieced that together what 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 do you like to do how do you like like what would you say your style is are you a running gun guy are you a um 
sit and be patient or you, I mean like what, what, what part of it do you like is a little bit of all of it? Yeah. Well, I, I have, I've been on a journey like every hunter is, I think if you've ever read, you know, some of the thoughts in terms of the kind of the evolution of a hunter, uh, a lot of people start out and it's all about the numbers or it's all yeah. about the kill. I, I can truly say that while, you know, a strong measure of success to me is still taking a turkey home at the end of the day that I love seeing turkeys live even more than I love seeing them die. I truly do. And, and what's been fun is to, in the last few years, put a lot more energy into enjoying the hunt than having the burden of, of trying to have the kill. For instance, I killed turkeys pretty easily in Iowa this year and, and, and worked at it, had an opportunity and passed. I didn't like the, the shot in terms of being just what I would consider. I like my average shot, uh, is just over 20 yards. So I, that's a bar I set for myself. Um, not that I don't have confidence in my gun choke and load or, or not that I judge anybody by what's right for them, but I, I personally like to, to, to get a gobbler close and, and, uh, had to work at it a couple more days in Minnesota because of that. I never pulled the trigger on one in Wisconsin. I was hunting with a good friend, Todd Johnson there and, and the turkeys were, were being turkeys and, and uh, sometimes that means that they, they win, and I'm okay with that because the experience I had was one I couldn't replace, hunting with a good friend on beautiful ground. And we probably spent as much time whispering to each other, visiting, and using our Merlin bird apps, identifying <laughs> songbirds. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, I, I mean, it, you know, to me, again, the hunt has become the real part of what I enjoy. And and, and interacting with any individual turkey uh, becomes, you know, it, its own kind of fun part of the hunt. I, I, I definitely, definitely love carrying one home at the end of the day. Um, but I, I have been able to, I think, go past that one measure of success, right, which is a, a notch tag. And uh, I, would, I would hope that everybody at some point gets to hunt turkeys long enough. <laughs> And maybe I have that, that that's, that's an opportunity that presents itself. And, and, you know, so again, it, it goes past that to where I'm very curious. Again, I talk about breaking the crop open. Well, two of the, two of the three turkeys I killed this year didn't have anything in their crop because they, I, you know, they basically were off the roost. And the mm-hmm. other one had a little bit of corn because I, I know that this turkey, it was, uh, it was waste corn. There was a, uh, a cornfield down in, in one of the, kind of the valleys and I heard them I was trying to get them to come my way off the roost they didn't they went down in the valleys in Minnesota was able to get them back uphill um, a little bit later in the morning and on the way he picked up a couple of acorns because he had also two acorns one was sprouted I thought that was pretty cool cool. Uh, just to just again you know kind of learning more about why are they at where they're at what are they doing and and so to me, that's been a, a great part of the hunt the last few years. I've been, you know, been trying to get to hunt different habitats, different states, and haven't made it to Mississippi yet. Uh, Ray Berryhill, another good friend, gave me an invite, and then COVID hit. We weren't able to make it happen. I'm still hoping to get down there and and experience some some hunting there. But just just a, a new piece of ground is still exciting. I 
hunted a little public ground this year. That's that's kind of fun, just uh, mixing it up between public and private. Again, just different dynamics, and there's, there's nothing particularly right for me. Um, some people have a really strong ethos around, hey, I'm gonna, I'm only gonna hunt public, or I'll never use a decoy. I did use a decoy uh, to kill one of my three birds this year, and and in, in early season in Iowa. Um, I, I use a decoy in that first season, or I usually do, depending on where I'm hunting. We we can't help but hunt some field birds here because <laughs> that's a, that's that's eighty percent of what you get. That's what I was um, thinking whenever you said that you tried to shoot them within twenty yards. I was like, you know, in Mississippi, there's a lot of places you can get where that's about as far as you can see. Out yeah, there, yeah, <laughs> that takes some restraint. Yeah. <laughs> well, for sure. I mean, yeah. if, if you've got a bird, you know, in the field, I mean, I. I, I, I use decoys as well most of the time when I, I take kids. So I, I've helped, I think it's now a couple dozen, uh, get their first turkey and, and we, and I've helped with several in the past, you know, uh, hunts for, for the disabled and things like that. And I have found decoys to be more helpful than at any time, just in order to give, you know, the person I'm taking a little bit more <clears throat> ability to kind of have the eyes off of them. And, right. But I will say in, in taking others, you know, I, I, I'm i a little bit persnickety about not just having a trigger man along. I, 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 I don't like that as much as when I take times I've taken a kid, especially um, my whole process is I'm going to I'm going to take you out scouting with me. We're going to scout the farm together and we're going to get our, you know, plan together in terms of where we think they're roosting try to find some roost trees and then where we're going to set up and and let them be part of that whole thing and and then you know then we go on the hunt and then i've been i've always done my best to try to help them preserve the memories of the hunt in terms of i've caped out fans and done stuff like that and then make sure that they are part of cleaning the bird which you'd be surprised how often i think people think that, that kids wouldn't like that part most of the kids i've taken that's the favorite part of the hunt is dissecting the bird i did a full-blown dissection in nebraska a couple of weeks ago the guy the guy that we <laughs> the first time i've ever done that i've never got that deep into one before uh i'm talking <laughs> about we we'd done separated everything out laid everything out on the tailgate uh the, the farmer wow. we saying with that is at his two kids out there they were like in kindergarten and first grade and that was it started it all when i started cleaning it and they were like can we see its heart can we see its heart can we see its heart and then they just started going down oh, yeah. every organ that they could name. And so for, by the time it was over with, we had we had everything laid out. We're describing what everything did. Oh, they were enthralled with it. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. You talk about the heart. I mean, I'm I don't do a lot with like a blood ritual or anything. I'm not one that wants to paint blood on a kid <laughs> or anything. But I, I I do make a point that the turkey it, it, it's not just the breast that's edible. I I always am you know, cautious to make sure that we, we, uh, we save as much meat off that turkey as we can. I provide recipes. Normally what I would even do is try to give them some turkey that I've made. I make turkey thigh pastrami and it's a killer recipe. It's the best wild turkey you've ever eaten is wild turkey thigh pastrami. You're going to have to I take the upper part. Of, oh, it's, it's delicious. And, and, uh, I've, I've yet to find somebody that doesn't like that. And, and the heart, and I take one lobe of the liver. I know it's a filter, but one lobe of the liver and the heart, and I put garlic salt on it and, and just roast it over a, a little fire I make on the ground. And that's that's what I, I, I enjoy that because I find that to be 
most delicious part of the turkey. And it's funny you do that with a kid and, 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 uh, kind of opens their eyes to the fact that there's more to eat than just a couple, a couple, you know, fillets of breast meat. Right. Yeah. Well, and it's amazing how many people, even adults still think, you know, it's all about those breasts, but I try to tell everybody that the legs and thighs to me taste head and shoulders above that breast, but mm-hmm. it's still so many people don't, I don't know if it's because it's a little harder to cook or if it's a little more time consuming to get them out or what, I don't know, but I collect legs yeah, that's, and thighs that's, that's, at a, at, every time, every time somebody else I'm with kills one, they don't want them. I, I collect mm-hmm. legs and thighs. Yeah. I mean, cause exactly. most people don't want them. Yep. I think, I think it's just, as you're saying, it's people either make an assumption or maybe they've, they've had it when they weren't cooked good. I mean, if you just, if you just take a piece of meat and don't, don't treat it right, your experience is never going to be good. But if you just take a little bit of time to learn about it, you find out it's not that hard. Yeah. That holds true with any kind of cooking. Yeah. Unfortunately, I, mean, it, I think it's yeah. all wild game too, especially I was just thinking about how, you know, you've got, uh, well, number one, just with the turkey breast, like the only way to cook it is to fry it up into nuggets or either with a deer back straps. Like, well, we got to wrap this in bacon and add cream cheese. Like, well, yeah, there, that's one way, but <laughs> there is a lot of other ones out there too. That's right. Yeah. Well, and even, even things like, uh, the feathers. I mean, I, I pretty much denude my turkeys of feathers <laughs> and, and save them in garbage bags. And then, uh, when I help teach youth field days, I give feathers away to the kids and you ought to, it's like they're getting away with something. They are, they are stoked when they run off with the, you know, a bunch of feathers. They think they really got something. And, and uh, it's just, it's a neat way to take a bird that you have reverence for and, and uh, just know that you're not you're not just a consumer. You're still kind of helping to to pass it along. Yeah, there's nothing worse than at the end of everything when you've got the breast and the legs and the thighs and everything out, and you still have what's left of that bird, and you have to throw it away. It's just like I hate to even get rid of this. Yep. I haven't yep. done anything with all you. the like breast and body feathers. We've gotten to where the last couple I've killed, we've kept all the wings and tail feathers and secondary feathers and all that and morgan started using it as like in flower arrangements or stuff like that like she'll she keeps it all in a box and if she makes a new flower range or something she'll add them into it yeah i've got the full wing of that osceola i killed this year just because of how dark it is but i don't know it's in my freezer yeah. i don't know what i'm gonna do with it but i'll see something <laughs> online or something one day and go ahead with it. yeah have you seen the i mean they're they're if you just spend a little time there are some great ideas you can get like a native american uh, facial profile, and then the wing comes off like it's a headdress, and it, it's actually really neat looking. I've seen, I, I've seen yeah. a lot of different, a lot of different ideas out there. But <clears throat> I've got a, I've got a guy I work with who fletches his own arrows and does everything, and he's he's always happy to take as many primary wing feathers as I'll give him. Yeah, there was a guy. I got one. Um, I think I showed it to you at our lake house one time. There's a guy from up here that makes uh, like fishing bobbers. Out of out of the primary feathers, hmm. you ever seen that? They're like never a, have. They some people really like them for like they're super 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 sensitive. So some people like them for like crappie fishing and stuff. Huh? Well, I saw, uh, that's one I haven't seen yet. I saw um, somebody on Instagram. I can't remember who it was, but they were making they were tying flies with some of the feathers, and that was I thought that was that is. 
Speaking of feathers, I don't know. It doesn't ask either one of y'all if y'all had ever looked for this. A good friend of mine showed us this a couple of years ago. And uh, sometimes I can find it right. He can go right to it every time. Sometimes I can find it off the bat. Sometimes I can't. But, um, but I don't. I, I mean, I've seen them and it sure, sure looks like it, it does. But uh, there's like a feather, right? Right at the point of their wing that's got like every color on the turkey's body on it. Have you ever pulled that photo? Oh, out? yeah. I don't know yeah, you ever, you, it, yeah. It's, it's just like you, you see on a on a mallard or whatever, right? It's that uh, – I'm trying to remember what they call that. I can't remember uh, what the name I'm, of that feather is. I'm, I'm, dropping, I'm dropping it for the moment, but Wait, yeah, it's got the iridescence. Like, it'll have like the – yeah, like it'll have like the iridescence on one part of it. It'll have like a little bit of the wing feather on part of it. The end of it will look kind of like the tail feather. Like that one wing – that one one feather will have like every color on that turkey all encompassing that one feather. I'm going to have to find that next year. Right. I've never heard of that. Yep. Well, Austin, you got anything else? I'm sure uh, we've probably taken enough of Brent's time. I got one other thing I want to talk about, and then we'll we'll get him wrapped up, just because he was, he mentioned he mentioned two things earlier when we kind of get to this on passing it on, and then he talked about, uh, I guess, kind of growing up hunting with his dad and having to carry the stick first. I know he had a cool story from a year or two ago. Uh, I think he got to kill a turkey. Uh, kill one with his dad's gun a year or two ago. Isn't that right, Brent? For full camera, yep. full full experience. And so I got a kind of two-part sure two question. Share that with us if you don't mind. And then what's the uh, what's the next step for uh, the Rogers family? You got anybody that, that kind of falls in your footsteps there? Well, I can answer both, yeah. In terms of the, the kind of what I would call the tribute hunt to my dad, you know, I, I don't know what it was about the Rogers family genes, but we were, we were, we poorly responded to COVID. Um, my parents, uh, my grandfather and my two brothers all got COVID in, uh, late October, November of, uh, 2020. And my, uh, my father and mother were, were both hospitalized my grandfather was in a nursing home my my brothers never got bad enough to be hospitalized but uh my father and grandfather ended up passing away from covid and uh so that was that was quite a quite a big you know change for our family in terms of you know two men that we respected moved on and both were ones that taught me hunting and who i had many great memories with and so when 2021 season rolled around it was very much on my mind that I wouldn't be hunting with dad again, at least not in the same way I always had, but I did, I did have him along. You know, I, I wore, wore his camo and took his gun, used his shells, used his calls. <laughs> it was, <clears throat> it was a great hunt. I, I'd been with him at convention the year before, um, spring of 20 or February, 2020. And, uh, he bought a Roger Parks gobbler pot and, uh, he had that and, uh, a couple other calls that he, that he, he always used in the past. And, and I took those calls out and never, nothing more satisfying than having, uh, two Toms and four Jakes come in and right, you know, just not right off the roost goblin hard. I was, I was using the gobbler calls from the parks calls and I was using the other calls just kind of to, to be able to, to make that memory to use them all. And, 
and uh wow that was that was special it, it it's uh it's something i still do i mean uh, on most of my turkey hunts i have an articles of my dad's with me um on the first hunt uh every year i'm gonna always have something of his i've been like this year first turkey um i used one of his old old winchester double x shells or whatever <laughs> and again i'm getting good close shots so i can use some of the ammo that that he had that I'm, I would say I, I maybe wouldn't necessarily use on my normal turkey hunts, but right. that's stuff that he used, right? And and that just means that it, it just makes it special in a different way. And and uh, in terms of your second question, I mean, you know, I've got a, a daughter, Hannah. Um, she, she's in college now, and a son who's graduated. He's a law enforcement officer, uh, and uh, his his name is Cyrus, and. And uh, both of, both of them and my wife Renee have all all killed turkeys over the year. In fact, I I took my wife, you know, even while she was pregnant uh, with our kids, and and uh, we hunted, and and eventually she booted me out and said, "I don't want your help or need your help. I want to do it my way and kill my own turkeys." And I said, "That's that's what every everybody wants to hear, right?" And that's, yeah. when she goes, it's her own hunt now, and both of my kids. Um, help them get multiple turkeys and and uh, uh, I think the college years for for a lot of folks are ones that you don't do as much hunting or at least that seems to, to be the case because you, you end up doing so much other stuff and that's been the case with both of them they've done less hunting but you know that that runs rich in our family that hunting uh, heritage and I've got no doubt that is they have more leisure time that they're both they're both still quite interested in grandpa's old guns and, and stuff like that they're both avid readers and and so my my hope is that that the kids will will pick up the torch yeah. and uh regardless i i've got you know nieces and nephews and others that that uh, are also ones that that uh, I know are, are part of that larger family. And then I've got, I've got my, uh, my larger Turkey family, even outside of that. I, I've made a number of relationships. I I've given a ton of calls away to, to kids that I want to keep interested in and uh, definitely trying to keep that fire stoked in them too. In fact, it really was brought home to me how important it is to make those memories. My, I have a neighbor, neighbor boy helped him get his first Turkey when he was 12 and he was killed in a car accident last week. And uh, just go. You're always going to be glad for the memories you make with those with those kids. Yep. Absolutely, yep. And with, I've got a young daughter. Austin's got a young daughter, and all that kind of. I've already. I mean, mine's only 17 months, but I've already started thinking about that kind of stuff. Just looking forward to getting to share my passions with her. Well, and that that was the reason why I kind of wanted to ask you about both of those. Is just a lot of similarities there with with y'all and our family kind of the way things have happened and um where we go about like getting ready for the season the stuff we take along with like take my dad for example like when when my grandfather went hunting he was gonna have a sydney call a sydney bone box call and his room at 870 and his sydney bone box call is gonna be in a crown royal bag you see my dad today that's the shotgun he's using and that's the box call he's using like it's just yeah there's just it's cool like that's just those those things that kind of become tradition like they're just you had mentioned that to me before and 
was just kind of drawn to that. And I, I, wasn't, I didn't. I actually, I didn't know you had a son. You had, you had mentioned your daughter to me before, so I, I knew that was kind of in common. But I didn't realize you had a son as well. Yep, sure yeah. did. Yeah, yeah, and you know, so Bo, I know you probably got the family tradition stories as well. Probably ought to give you a chance to tell one. But I, one I love about Austin, I don't know. I don't think I heard it shared on any of the podcasts I listened to here yet, uh, Austin, but it's the one that the year after your grandfather, Jack Dudley, died, that your dad and none of you grandsons killed a turkey. Yeah, I was going to say, actually, I, I, I thought actually about that. amazing. Yeah, I thought about that whenever you, you said that. I was going to say, your, your dad was a lot better with you than, than, he, than granddaddy was with <laughs> us, because I think he just laughed at us for a year. That's great. <laughs> he had to make it tough on you one, one year. Uh, we were That's like, great. We had resorted to tracking turkeys that year. Like we couldn't catch a break for nothing. We couldn't figure out what was going on. And then uh finally, uh I don't know, dad or somebody finally put together after all they're like, you know, after the season's over, they're like, you know, none of us killed a turkey this year. Like, First year this has ever happened, nobody killed a turkey. Yeah, that's what <laughs> you were talking about earlier, calling not sounding good. That's one of those times when you're like, Yeah, something I've completely forgotten how to turkey hunt somehow. Yeah, don't we know were how to call, don't know how to do anything. We were cutting pine limbs and like dragging tracks out in the road to see if the turkey had passed through there. If that track Make sure we were there was actually out, still a turkey. Yeah, there. it was like, Okay, there's there was tracks here yesterday. Let's clean it all out and see if they show up tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. It's be tough. That's for sure. Yeah, that that uh no that that really happened. That that sure did. He passed away in uh November of 2008, my freshman year of college, and we did not kill a turkey in 2009. I didn't have I yeah. heard about that he, until now. He wanted to make sure that he he you remembered that he was gone. <laughs> yeah, so now we pour out a shot of wild turkey opening morning before any of us go hunting. We all take a shot. We pour out the first shot. We all take a shot of wild turkey. And uh, he's been good to us since then. Well, that's that's fun to have <laughs> traditions. I, I mean, having traditions that you do is it is fun. Yeah, that's for sure. That's that's kind of the uh, I don't know. That's the main reason I feel like I hunt is just you know going up to the camp and hanging out and well, you mentioned doing that. things you've always done. Yeah, and you kind of mentioned that earlier, Brent. Well, like you kind of not that you necessarily move on from trying to kill one, but when you start realizing that there's a lot more memories to be made just from enjoying what you're doing, enjoying the people you're around, enjoying the experience, and it's not all just about the kill, it really makes the experience more fun. And it makes that celebration when you do kill one with somebody that you're close with, it makes it even better because, like, you have all – like, all that comes together at that point. Yes. No doubt. I would encourage all your listeners and, and both of you as well, if you don't, to, to really try to keep a, a hunting journal and and record what works and what doesn't and, and what, you know, kind of kind of just the, the crazy things that happen. I've got so much enjoyment going back and, and looking at that preseason and different times of year. I put photos in it. I make little drawings in it. And I've kept mementos like uh, – uh, th- there was a turkey that, that I killed that there was a balloon involved and, and I won't bother telling the whole story because somebody else is going to publish it in a book. <laughs> but, but I mean that there was a balloon involved and I saved a piece of the balloon, right. And, and put in the journal and it's so much fun to look back at that kind of stuff. Or I had a, 
uh, one of the times I was using a decoy in early season, I had a hawk that hit the decoy so hard it broke. It was one of those thick plastic decoys on a Delta decoy, and it, it busted busted it in half. And so I saved a piece of that, you know, broken shaft and yeah. stuck in the stuck in the journal. And some of those memories uh, are, are just priceless when you go back, and especially as some of the people you hunt with. Uh, aren't in camp anymore or you know i've lost permission on properties it's almost like losing a good friend or public area gets gets logged or something and and then just having whatever it is photos or some other memories of those are are ones that you need to to keep and uh, who knows some of those could turn into books in the future yeah yeah i need to that's uh doc weddle's books every time i read them i'm like all right i've got to start I got to start my own little journal, and I've got no telling how many seasons going back now. Probably about the first five or six days of the season, I'll have it journaled, and then I just fall off. I've got to keep it going though, but I do make sure I take that's pictures is my kind of my thing. I try to take as many as possible to make sure I don't forget any of those hunts. No, absolutely, it's great you mentioned Doc. You know, I don't know if some people may not know but doc was diagnosed with uh kidney cancer and had he just had surgery i just talked to him a couple of days ago he's recovering fine thankfully but what what a treasure in our turkey hunting community he's he's such a humble guy for what he's accomplished and he never set out to you know to be what i call my turkey hunting superhero in terms of being such a able hunter and willing to share his knowledge and his books are such great reads i would highly advocate if you haven't Red Doc's books that folks get those great books. Yeah, those are some of the best in my opinion. I've I got the third one. I guess it was uh oh I guess it came out last year, his third one. And it sure uh, did. He's he's part way through four getting it written. <laughs> yeah, that's uh they're always good though, just seeing, you know, what what like you say, what you can accomplish when uh it's not like he had all the money in the world to go all over the place or it's not like he was out starting out like yeah i'm gonna get as many slams as i can he just loved turkey hunting yep yeah he just completed uh u.s super slam number four this year and i think he's only got two birds to go to get number five to me that's just mind-boggling yeah one kind of i'd like to get one in my lifetime and that almost seems like it might not even be possible and to think about uh four yep well, Brent, I'm sure we've taken enough of your time. Uh, we'll kind of wrap it up. You got anything else that you want to say or or ask or anything? Well, I'm just going to say thanks for having me on. I mean, I've enjoyed listening to the other podcasts that you've done. You, you've covered some great ground, and you're both, I think, good ambassadors for turkey hunting because you, you're – you're looking at not just the the aspect of enjoying the hunting, but also the stewardship of the resource, and and uh, so there was some good education for even for me on listening to some of that, and and it was fun to be on and get to talk a little bit about my journey. So I'll look forward to, to hearing others you have on. Keep it up, gentlemen. Well, we appreciate that, and uh, yeah. Thanks for being yeah, we'll, a part of we'll it. We'll have to get you back on here again at some point, I'm sure, and we could probably talk for another hour and a half on new stuff. But, yeah, I can't tell you how much we appreciate it. And yeah, send us some folks to talk to. Yeah, absolutely. we Will do. All right, Brent. We'll see you later, man. All right. Good night. Yeah.